Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I am the senior pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, and I will be moderating today's forum. We are very pleased today to welcome Dr. Sylvia Earle, former chief scientist for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Dr. Earle is a marine biologist, author, scientific consultant, and National Geographic's Explorer in Residence. Time Magazine recently named Sylvia Earle a hero for the planet. Dr. Earle is also the founder of Sustainable Seas Expedition and is currently exploring and researching the 12 national marine sanctuaries surrounding the North American continent. The project is committed to increasing national understanding and conservation of the natural and cultural resources of the oceans. Dr. Earle made her first dive in 1952 at the age of 16 using a borrowed copper diving helmet. At 36, she became part of NASA's Argonaut program and spent two weeks in the Aquarius, an underwater habitat 50 feet below the surface. In 1985, Sylvia Earle made a solo descent 3,000 feet in the Pacific Ocean. Her record still stands as the deepest untethered solo dive. She is the author of several books, including Sea Change, A Message of the Oceans, Wild Ocean, and children's books, Hello Fish and Dive. Hello, Dr. Sylvia Earle. We're glad to have you with us today. Thank you. It's really a a privilege, a pleasure to be here in this land of great waters. Never mind that they're not salt water. Water is the key to life in whatever form it occurs. And here in Minnesota, with the Mississippi River, how many lakes? More than 10,000, surely. This is a water-blessed part of the world. This is a water-blessed planet. And if I could today, to all of you assembled here and all of you listening, I would take us all in a beautiful submersible out into the great waters of the ocean and go for a dive. Would you like to do that? Does that sound like fun? <laughs> for me, diving in the ocean is like diving into time because on the way, even, even a few feet under the surface of the sea and even in fresh waters, you're likely to see things that you'll never see on the land. Certainly in the ocean, there are whole categories of life that are found only there in the sea. Sponges, jellies, echinoderms, you know, the starfishes and sea cucumbers and sea urchins of the world. Whole categories of life that have been on the planet for hundreds of millions of years. Only about half of the broad categories of living creatures have found their way to the land. If you go into the ocean, you can catch glimpses of creatures whose distant relatives, whose ancestors were swimming in the oceans of the world as the world was half a billion years ago. Time before the dinosaurs were stomping around on the land, there were familiar creatures, familiar to us, out there in the ocean. I'd like to be able to have one of those magical machines that science fictions, fiction writers love to to talk about, you know, time machines. 
and not just dive out into the ocean, but dive back into time, really, to see what it was like when the planet was young, when the atmosphere was not like it is today with 20% oxygen and 80% nitrogen, but when it was much like the atmosphere on Mars, mostly carbon dioxide. The changes that have taken place over the hundreds of millions of years that have preceded the present time have come about in ways that have largely been influenced by life on Earth. And of course, most of life is out there in the sea, in the waters of the world. 97% of the world's water, after all, is in the ocean. When you think about it, the average depth is two and a half miles. When we go into the sea, we tend to nibble around the edges, either skimming the surface in boats or diving down, holding our breath to a few feet. Some people go to as much as 500 feet, holding their breath. Not very many people have done that. Not many people go that deep and come back, you know? One-way trips into the deep sea are easy, but it's only the round trips that, that count, as far as I'm concerned. The ocean, well, waters generally, but especially the ocean, shapes the character of Earth, makes it hospitable for the likes of us. I heard an astronaut, Joe Allen, once talk about the importance of water, the importance of Earth, of the natural systems, basically, as, as our life support system. He said, as an astronaut, when you sign up, you soon are impressed with the importance of life support, because when you go up in, into space, you're very conscious of every breath of air that you take, because you have to take every breath with you. You have to take all the water with you. You have to have a special life support suit. He said, you have to learn everything you can about your life support system, and then do everything you can as a successful astronaut to take care of your life support system. And then, with a sweep of his arms during this conversation, he pointed to a picture of the planet and said, that's our life support system. And the water really is what makes it possible for us to survive here. I once had a, an interview with a reporter in Australia who, I think she was just poking me in the ribs a little bit, but she said, why should I care if the ocean dries up? You know, she said, I get seasick when I think about the ocean. <laughs> I don't eat fish. Uh, people don't drink salt water. If there were no ocean at all, what difference would it make? Well, I think about what difference it would make if this planet had no ocean. Think of our sister planet, same age, four and a half billion years. The distance from the sun makes life, well, feasible, if not congenial for the likes of us. Mars is a cold planet, but still, given the proper attire, we could set up housekeeping on Mars, and I think we will someday. We're making plans to send our emissaries up there, and maybe the not-too-distant future, maybe some of the youngsters in the audience here will be among those who first go to Mars. But we will have to take every breath of air, every drop of water, every bite of food, every stitch of clothing when we go set up housekeeping there someday in the future. Meanwhile, here, this planet, we take those things for granted. We take the congenial atmosphere, the congenial range of temperature, the abundance of water, the circumstances that make life here possible. And yet, we have not done a great job in our time of taking care of our life support system, and there is so much more that we need to know about it in order for us to really understand 
what we need to do, what we can get away with in terms of making inroads into the natural resource base that makes life here possible. I think of what it was like here in this part of the world, what the Mississippi River was like, when the building that we're seated in this morning was just being constructed a hundred years ago. It's changed a lot in a hundred years. Certainly, the Mississippi has always been kind of muddy because it's been gathering the sediments and runoff from the lands that it draws from as it flows out to the Gulf of Mexico. And through the heartland of this country, it carries with it the essence of the land. But that essence in our time, in my parents' time, has changed because a hundred years ago it wasn't loaded with the high concentrations of nitrates and phosphates that flow from the, the backyards, the lawns, the golf courses, and of course the, the farms that now border the shores of the rivers that flow into the mighty river, the Mississippi, and off into the Gulf, nor the other contaminants that have been added as our industries have grown at the cost, in some ways, of what we're doing to our life support system. Go back 200 years when Lewis and Clark were setting out across the, the country to explore the American West. It was very different then from it was what it was 100 years ago. Or go back 100,000 years ago. Imagine what this land, what the water was like at that point in time. It has always changed and will change in the future, but the important thing, I think, for us to face up to in our time is how much change has happened in such a short period of time. I think about the last century in a very personal way because my father was born in 1900. I always knew what year it was, it was and how, how old my father was because it was whatever year it happened to be. And my mother, born in 1902, I knew was just two years younger than whatever year it happened to be. But I think of the changes that, that they witnessed in their time, the advent of electrical lights, electric electricity generally to power our way of life, to have indoor plumbing, for heaven's sakes, to have the communication systems that we now take for granted, just the evolution of flight. I'd love to have known this part of the world when Charles Lindbergh was a boy. He grew up in the area around here, of course. I am fond of members of the Lindbergh family that I've come to know and love to hear their stories about what this part of the world was like many years ago. And of course, I love it now, and I know it will be a pleasant place to be on into the future, but it will be, and so will the rest of the world, depending on what we do. About that time machine, you know, as a kid, I used to imagine what it would be like to go back in time and see what it was like when my parents were kids. I mean, did they behave or what? <laughs> or what was it like just in the natural world? I long to maybe see what the planet was like when dinosaurs were around or before they were around. It would be such a trip to be able to just choose times in the past to go and check it out. I'd also like to go and see what it is like in the future. 50, 100, 1,000, 10,000 years. Will people still be here? And if so, what will the world be like? What influences will we have? What natural events will occur to change the way the world is on into the future? But if I had to choose of all the times, past or future or now, to be around, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a better time than right now, a more interesting time, a time when we have 
more potential, more power to make a difference as never before and maybe as never again to shape the nature of the future, to work with nature in order to secure a sustained future for ourselves and for all who follow. But if we keep on going the way we are right now on a track of consuming the natural resources and not really taking care of the water in the best ways that we know how to do it, we can and will suffer the consequences. It will not be as bright a future as our present is or as our past has been. We have the power right now to go one way or the other, and it really comes down to what we do or don't do. Just last week, I had a chance to meet and talk with some of the corporate leaders in this country uh, who were convened at a session in Colorado Springs by the Nature Conservancy to talk about the business of trying to find the balance between a sound economy and a sound environment and things that corporations can do that favorably affect the bottom line, but at the same time show good social conscience and take care of the resources and to try to find the key to doing the right thing by the natural systems, by the, the world at large, by the future, while paying attention to shareholder value as one of the speakers who was at this convention referred to the real challenge of any corporation. You've got to preserve the assets, preserve and improve shareholder value. But then it was my turn. And I got up and much like Joe Allen pointing to a picture of the earth from afar, I was able to articulate what I really believe, that we are all shareholders in the value of the planet. We all have a stake in what those natural resources are. And it's up to us whether that value is preserved or whether it's diminished on into the future. We can either accept that responsibility and the pleasure of making decisions that will improve the state of the world on into the future, or maybe because we don't know that we are shareholders in the assets, taking care of our life support system, or maybe we don't care. Whatever the reason, it's a choice. And it's a choice either consciously because we deliberately decide to go one way or the other, or by default, we decide not to do anything consciously. Whatever, this is a point in history that is a turning point, not just because we mark it by the way we keep time as the year 2000, the end of a century, the start of a new one, the end of a millennium, the start of a new one. At least it's got our attention. But even beyond that, forget the calendar and what it says. Just recognize that the pressures that we are now putting on the wild systems, the natural systems that sustain us, that support us, that deliver oxygen into the atmosphere, that provide a congenial planet for us to occupy, they are at risk because of the actions that we have been taking in the course of human history that goes back as long as you care to measure it. If you just say the end of the last ice age, as human population really began to thrive and prosper and expand and grow, 10,000 years ago, when the Great Lakes were just at the point of getting formed in the configuration that we now get to now know them, when the general state of the planet was much as we now see it, but as sea level rose around the world with the melting of the polar ice and the, the, at the end of the last ice age. And 
when I think about what the world population was when Lewis and Clark were on the planet, that was about a billion people. When I was a child, the population had doubled in the 1930s to two billion people. And here we are facing a world where there are six billion of us and climbing in terms of our numbers. But the size of the planet, the size of the ocean, the size and state of the natural world isn't increasing. It's the same old planet and it just doesn't grow along with our needs. The trick for us is to learn how to use the natural resources but not to use them up. Half a century ago, several strong voices made a profound difference in the way people think about nature. One of my great heroes, Jacques Cousteau, of course he was one of my great heroes, Mr. Ocean himself. He developed, along with colleagues, new access to the sea and for the first time it was possible for us to take ourselves into the ocean and dive. My mom waited until she was 81 before she put mask and flippers on and jumped into the ocean and saw what I'm trying to share with you, that the ocean is alive, it's not just water. Jacques Cousteau, with his new creation, the Aqualung, and his engineering friend, Emile Guignan, came through with a system that has changed the world, changed our access to the world. Ed Link, another pioneer, not just with what it takes to go in the skies above, but into the depths of the sea as well, living underwater with techniques that made that possible. Many others who have developed the technologies that have given us access to the skies above and to the depths below. And others, Aldo Leopold, another hero, who articulated an ethic for the land, grew up in Wisconsin, talked about in a little book called The Sand County Almanac, the importance of protecting the wild, the one thing he said that you can diminish, that you can destroy, but we cannot put it back together again once gone. Rachel Carson moved us, moved me certainly, not just with that landmark book, Silent Spring, but also an ocean trilogy, The Edge of the Sea, Under the Sea Wind and the Sea Around Us, and caused people to think about the ocean in ways that some of us hadn't thought before. Rachel Carson said then that the real wealth of the nation lies in the resources of the earth, the soil, the water, the forests, minerals, and wildlife, to utilize them for present needs while ensuring their preservation for future generations. That ethic preceded the ethic that is now the, said to be the way that we should try to behave in terms of, of maintaining the values for the future while using them for our present time. This preceded and maybe helped stimulate some of the laws that we now see in this country. In the 1970s, it was a time of amazing focus on protecting the natural resources. We got the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Coastal Zone Management Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act that, that helps govern the way we interact and behave toward whales and dolphins and seals and sea lions and such and also a piece of legislation that is near and dear to my heart, the National Marine Sanctuaries Act of 1972. This came into effect a hundred years after the first national park was established, Yellowstone, in 1872. That happens to be the same year that the first global oceanographic expedition took place when the Challenger set out from the shores of England. And for the first time, scientists began to lower nets and dredges and bottles over the side to sample the, the deep sea, the oceans all over the world. There had been other 
exploratory efforts before, but nothing before on a global scale to give us a sense of the nature of the sea as the cornerstone of what makes life on Earth possible, no matter where on Earth we happen to live. 1872, the national park system began to get up and running. It didn't actually become official until early in the century. Teddy Roosevelt helped to make that happen. The organization that I'm currently much involved with, the National Geographic, had a lot to do with supporting that effort of protecting the land, the ethic of understanding that the natural systems really are valuable assets, precious assets for all of us, and we've got to do what it takes to establish protected areas. But in 1972, we began to look to the sea. Some say the national park system is the best idea America ever had. Well, I think it's at least as good idea to turn to the ocean and try to do similar things. And some people say, how do you protect the ocean? You can't fence it off the way you do the national parks. You can't establish boundaries. And yet, you know, our technologies are so good today, you know exactly where you are on the planet through satellite techniques that give us the news about precisely where you are. You don't have to have a fence to know exactly where you are in the ocean anymore. But more than that, the same principles apply to protecting areas in the sea that we have come to understand are valuable on the land. Some say, well, you can't contain the fish, they'll just swim in and out. Well, you can't contain the animals either, unless you really do put up a big, tall fence, tall enough to keep the eagles from flying back and forth and the other birds and insects and other creatures that are a part of the natural systems on the land. More than just laws, more than fences, there have to be the changes in the way we think, the concern about the need, the overarching ethic of caring for the natural systems that care for us. The national parks are really important. It is important to establish places. National marine sanctuaries are as well for the same reasons. It sort of focuses our thinking, but all by, that, all by itself, these little places aren't enough. They're just like cornerstones, little pieces of the overall understanding that it really must take for us to protect the assets. We have to really believe and understand that we are dependent on the natural systems and treat them even if they're outside the fenced areas or whether they're real fences or just otherwise to realize that they're important to us. So in our everyday lives, we can do things that will make a difference. What is the problem right now with the ocean, with the waters of the world? A lot of things have been going on that have changed the character, the chemistry of the world's waters, of the ocean, partly because of what we're putting into, this, into the lakes, rivers, and streams that flow into, ultimately, the ocean. We treat the sea as the ultimate sewer. At the same time, we treat the ocean as a source of food. I mean, it doesn't seem logical somehow, not just the ocean, but the freshwaters as well. We allow things to flow into the Great Lakes, into our backyard lakes, into our rivers, and so on, that you really don't want flowing into us, and yet we take creatures from these polluted waters and consume them, sometimes thereby engulfing and, and taking in high concentrations of the very things you don't want in yourself. Aside from the problems, though, about what we're putting into the sea, what we are taking out in our time, in the last century, in the last half century, in the last 20 years, is unprecedented. 
we are predators in the ocean on a scale that the planet has never seen a predator before. I mean, we think saber-toothed tigers must have been pretty wild and fearsome creatures, or that Tyrannosaurus rex was quite an awesome sight and a giant predator for no matter how you gauge a predator. But think about us. We are extracting wildlife from the sea on a scale of some 100 million tons a year. You can go to the Tokyo fish market in Japan and in the course of a year watch a good million tons of wildlife taken from oceans across the planet just in the course of a year. A slice of wild creatures that have no preparation for the likes of us in terms of defending themselves against a predator because nothing in their history has prepared them for terrestrial primates going into their backyard with acoustic techniques to find them, with nets to, or, and hooks and all the other techniques we have for taking them out of the ocean and then transporting them to markets all over the world. There was a time when it was thought that we could do this sustainably, extract from wild systems large numbers. I had an uncle who made a living as a young man in the early part of the 1900s by taking wild birds, ducks, geese, and marsh hens, also muskrats from the marshes in New Jersey. He really made his living by taking wildlife by the truckload and selling them to the markets commercially. He could not do it as a middle-aged man because there simply weren't enough left to go around. He wasn't single-handedly responsible for the decline of ducks and geese and other wildlife in the northeastern part of, the, of this country or elsewhere, but he was one of many who made their living in the early part of the 1900s and certainly in the 1800s as well by consuming wildlife from the land. Today, we're seeing a similar state of affairs with fishermen who are trying to make their living and are successful right now in consuming wildlife from the sea, but on a scale far beyond anything we ever were able to do on the land. Trouble is, we can't see it. Underwater, you don't know when you consume a tasty, succulent dish full of scallops or shrimp, the real cost of putting them there. To capture scallops and shrimp out of the ocean, it's like, it's like using a bulldozer to capture songbirds. You know, you capture the whole forest, shake out the few songbirds or squirrels that you want, and you throw the forest away. That's how scallops are taken. I've seen the results. It looks like a, well, it looks like a bulldozer has gone across the seafloor, where once luxuriant sponges and soft corals and rocky terrain was, it's leveled out, it's flattened. And a few things remain, and the wonderful thing is that nature is resilient. And there is a chance if we back off soon enough. The question is, is it soon enough for some things? It is sooner now, or better now than later, because the more chance we give the wild systems to recover, the better chance that they'll have for, for restoring back to some semblance of sustained prosperity. But we are at a critical turning point right now. When I served as the chief scientist at NOAA, sat on a fancy desk in Washington instead of being out in the ocean most of the time, I had a piece of paper come across my desk that really was the most stunning piece of news that I'd heard maybe before or since. It was that in 20 years, the population of bluefin tuna in the North Atlantic had been diminished 
down to 10% of what it was by fishing activities. This was an assessment by the National Marine Fisheries Service, sort of out there trying to, to gauge on a sustained basis how many fish could we take on an ongoing basis. And it turns out that in 20 years since we first started measuring such things, the population of reproducing adults had been diminished by 90%. And my reaction in a big important meeting was, I, had, I just couldn't help it, I burst out, I said, what are we trying to do, exterminate them? Because if we are, we're doing a great job, only 10% left to go. And you know, the real goal was we're trying to maintain an ongoing population because people love to eat tuna fish of all sorts, but bluefin has a specially high price and high value these days. Well, it was then they started calling me the Sturgeon General. I, uh, and I, I take that responsibility quite seriously, actually, <laughs> because I care about the critters in the sea, having gotten to know some of them face to face. I care about what we're doing to them and what we're doing to ourselves as a consequence. It's not just bluefin tuna, it's cod, it's herring, it's halibut. You name the you know, tasty morsel of your choice and you're likely to, if it's a wild-caught fish commercially exploited at this point in time, then you're likely to be touching on something that needs help. And we have the ability right now to provide that help. The reason that I became so excited about the opportunity to, to go forward with this series of expeditions to the National Marine Sanctuaries is that it provides an opportunity for me personally to get to know the ocean better and the creatures who live there, but also to get to know our own aquatic backyard that is still largely unknown. People don't realize that the greatest era of exploration is just beginning that less than 5% of the ocean has been explored at all. And kids who say to me that they think it's great to be an explorer, but wasn't it all done years ago? And isn't this a time when we learn about what others did? Nothing left for us to do, right? Wrong. <laughs> the greatest time of exploration is just beginning to open as we develop the technologies to get us to places we couldn't go before. Not, not just the moon and Mars, and to the edge of our solar system and perhaps beyond, but even to the depths of our own ocean. Only two people have been seven miles down and come back. This is the time, as never before, when we have a chance to explore, to understand the nature of those systems that support us. The Sustainable Seas Expeditions is a five-year mission supported by the Goldman Foundation in San Francisco and the National Geographic Society and NOAA and other agencies, NASA is contributing, at the US Navy, the Coast Guard, the US Coast and Ge uh, Geological Survey, and private institutions, and a number of individuals who are joining in with this great new era of exploration, with the idea that maybe we can set a model, set a standard here of, of research and exploration and, and getting to know the place and education, getting kids involved with understanding our own aquatic backyard, whether it's freshwater or salt, and go forward as a set a standard for the world. I hope, I really hope that the consequence of the Sustainable Seas Expeditions will be that I'll be able to respond to the ethic that my parents sort of laid down to my brothers and me when I was a kid. My mom used to say, coming into my bedroom and seeing the disarray that was there, Sylvia, you know you should, you really should leave the place better than you found it. <laughs> and I got that time and again 
And I realized she was conveying ultimately that other message, she who planted trees, she who really did leave the place better than she found it. And my dad, seeing the, the broken toys as I tried to figure out how they worked, taking them apart, not always knowing how to put them back together again, he'd always come in with a sigh and help me try to put them back together again and say, you know, you know if you can't, fix it. Don't break it. <laughs> and I think that way about the natural systems that have been evolving over four and a half billion years. The capital that makes up the natural resource base that we as shareholders have the responsibility for taking care of those assets. If we can't fix those systems, if we don't know how to put them back together again, we really should be careful about taking them apart. I think about that. I think about every time I go out into the sea and the new little submarines that we have and greet new creatures who've never seen the likes of terrestrial primates before, and I feel this weight of responsibility. I feel that as we go forward, it's important, not only to the next generation, but also the ethic of taking care of those natural systems that in the end take care of us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sylvia Earle. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Tim Hart Anderson, the senior pastor here, and I am moderating today's forum. Today's guest is Dr. Sylvia Earle, who has just spoken on the topic, Sustainable Seas, the Vision, the Reality. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like again to Thank the sponsors of today's forum, the McKnight Foundation, the Star Tribune Foundation, and Barnes and Noble Booksellers. Dr. Earle, if you would return to the podium, we will begin the questions. With pleasure, <laughs> I think. <laughs> what was the most exciting moment of your career? Well, maybe it's right now, facing that question, <laughs> knowing that there are a lot of people out there listening. I think the most exciting time is out there somewhere in the future. Every time I start a new day, I think, well, what's it going to be? <laughs> Some exciting things are, are right on the edge of happening. I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. I feel that way, certainly, every time I go underwater. You never know what you're going to see, what you're going to find, who's going to greet you when you jump into a wild place. This question is from, appropriately enough, a boy named Noah, uh -huh. an eight-year-old boy. His question is, what was the scariest sea animal that you have ever seen? <laughs> well, you know, I don't think of sea animals as being scary. Not really. I've met thousands of sharks, and you'd think that would be really scary, except that you only have to worry about the man-eaters, and I don't qualify. And, uh, <laughs> and I learned a long time ago that w people are not on their menu, by and large. Only if, under rare circumstances, somebody gets nibbled on, but we munch on many more sharks than sharks <laughs> are, you know, nibble on people. So if they 
bite one of us once in a while. I guess it's only fair. <laughs> I, I did meet a creature that it, uh, made my heart stop just recently. Uh, this was just a few weeks ago. I was in Hawaii in the little deep worker submersible that we're using for the Sustainable Seas Expeditions, visiting the 12 marine sanctuaries. Hawaii is blessed with one of them, largely aimed at protecting the humpback whales, the singing whales that live there. A lot of people go to Hawaii and they swim and they take boats and they, they really enjoy that, those beautiful islands, but I got to meet a resident of the Hawaiian Islands that nobody had ever met before. And it's as big as probably anybody listening, certainly anybody that I can see in this audience. A huge octopus, beautiful creature, red, silver, and gold, who greeted me at 1,300 feet beneath the surface where it's really dark except for the bioluminescent creatures that flash and sparkle and glow in that realm. My first reaction was that I didn't think it was a living thing. I thought it was a big piece of floating trash until I saw the eyes <laughs> and turned the submersible and could illuminate this, this great blob with my lights, the lights on the sub, and saw that it was this gorgeous, beautiful octopus eight arms like a good octopus should have, and she had eggs, and we danced for an hour. So at first, my reaction, my first reaction when I saw it was a living creature, then it was something like a, a squid or octopus, was, it's a giant squid! And I was really excited, not scared, but more enthralled. I'm more frightened, I have to tell you, on freeways getting to a submarine than I am any time underwater. <laughs> this is a question about an item in the news recently. Whales were beached in an area, uh, died, I guess this was, in the, was it in the Caribbean, I think, where Navy sonar experiments were taking place. Can you say something about that? Yeah, there's some real questions now being raised about our introduction of sounds in the sea, something that we really haven't given much thought to in times past, but if you think of the ocean as a sea creature might, especially a dolphin, a whale, or a fish that is dependent on under communicating with sound, the introduction of not just big booming sound of the sort that some are, are concerned may have, have caused a problem for dolphins or, or whales um, by influencing their hearing, or in some cases the sounds that we introduce into the sea are so strong that you can actually shock the creatures there. You can kill with sound. It, you know that with explosions can create a shock, especially with, with creatures that have air spaces in their bodies as marine mammals do. So either that or interfering with hearing to the point that their natural acoustic mechanisms are, are destroyed or interfered with. Uh, some say that a deaf whale is by definition a dead whale because they use sound, at least the toothed whales do, to see with they use it like sonar to scan ahead to see where they're going, to um, de determine where their food is, and, and so on, and to communicate over long distances. So without sound, it would be like having the loss of sight for us, although they use sight as well. So whether there was a correlation in the case of the Navy's use of sound for experimental purposes and the, the beaching of the, the marine mammals, uh, we really can't say for sure, but enough correlations are beginning to happen, not just this recent event, but in the Mediterranean and elsewhere, that for the first time we're beginning to evaluate the potential impact that we may be having on life in the sea because of the sounds that we're putting in the sea. 
And if it turns out that there is a definite relationship that we are causing real problems, we probably ought to think hard about what we can do to solve those problems. Neither the predatory practices of terrestrials in the sea, would you recommend that people eat no seafood unless commercially farmed? Well, I come from a seafood-loving family. I grew up munching on clams and oysters and flounder and lobster, just, you know, the whole range of wild game, wild creatures from the sea. But I don't do that anymore. It's a personal decision. I'm not advising other people just stop eating seafood, stop eating fish. It is a personal choice, but I think that the time has come when we should think pretty hard about making alternative choices for two reasons. One, because you don't know where those fish have been swimming, so there's a personal health issues. As, as good as seafood and uh, especially fish are said to be for health, for our own human health because of their special oils and oysters and clams are really good for you. Mussels are great and good source of protein. But they also are loaded right now because of where they grow in coastal waters with the very things you don't want in us by and large. And the mechanisms are not well in place to actually uh, regulate or to assess the wild creatures that come into our markets. We, you can go to the local supermarkets and have orange roughy. I'm sure you can see it, $8.99 a pound or something like that. Maybe it's more, $12, $15 a pound. Or Chilean sea bass, a dressed up name for the Patagonian toothfish, a creature that is very long lived, very slow to grow. I mean, it may be 50 or 60, 80 years old, a Chilean sea bass, before it comes to your plate. The orange ruffy may be a century old. In 10 years, the, those populations have really been hammered because for the first time, we're able to fish where they are, down several thousand feet beneath the surface. We couldn't get to them before this time. We didn't have global markets that are aggressively seeking new forms of wildlife to consume. But in the process of doing that, we are not only endangering ourselves in some ways because we don't know what chemicals we're adding to our own bodies, but also we're certainly putting pressure on these wild populations. So, you know, I've made the personal choice. I know too much. I cannot enjoy a lobster anymore because, first of all, I've met them on their own terms. I've been inspected by lobsters, <laughs> and they're great creatures. <laughs> I, know, I know grouper. They are the Labrador retrievers of the sea. They have touched my heart the way that any creature will if you really get to know them. But more than that, I mean, we don't photosynthesize. We are creatures that do consume other creatures by nature, but we should cultivate much more. We can, I mean, catfish are a really good bet. Two pounds of plants to make a pound of catfish. We know how to do this. They are essentially the chickens of aquatic circumstances. Tilapia is another that can readily be cultivated. Sun's energy, plants, fish in a very short food chain, just as chickens, sun's energy, plants, about two pounds of plants to make a pound of fish. But if you're talking about something like a tuna fish that lives maybe 10 years before it is caught, or let alone something that's 50 years old before it is consumed by one of us, sun's energy, plants, always have to have plants as intermediaries for most of the things we consume. And then the little creatures that eat the plants and the smaller, the slightly larger creatures that eat them, and finally you get to a fish large enough for a tuna to notice and then it lives for 10 years. If you do the math and think about the consumption burning of energy along the way, it's about 100,000 pounds of plants 
at the end of a long and complex food chain for one pound of tuna. We don't cultivate carnivores on farms for good reason. It isn't cost effective. We need to really think hard about consuming wild caught carnivores, the lions and tigers of the sea, if we really want to munch them at all into the future. I understand the ocean is absorbing the effects of the Earth's global warming, warming process. How will this affect our ocean creatures? Oh, big, difficult question, but a really important one. And it's something that is the focus of a lot of good minds around the world, the looking at the question of the changing nature of the planet, the, the trend, a warming trend, which may be a natural one. If, you know, if you go back through time, the planet has been much cooler than it is now. It's also been much warmer during times past, not because of the presence of us. But I think the really critical factor is our impact on the natural cycles, that we can certainly have a, an impact in terms of accelerating the process in a time scale that matters in our lifetime, sea level rise, for example, or other factors that may have an impact on the ocean. In fact, global warming is thought to be one of the key factors in the decline of coral reefs around the world. They live, these creatures that make up those complex systems that we know and love as coral reefs, they live on the edge. A very narrow band of temperature is appropriate for the survival of most corals. Warm the water temperature beyond a certain critical level and hold it there for a few days and it really causes them to go belly up if corals have bellies. <laughs> and similarly, if you cool it off, they're similarly stressed. That stress, coupled with other stresses, has caused a, an alarming decline with the coral reefs around the world. Uh, I can't give you exact numbers because we don't know exactly what it was like 30 years ago, but there is, without any doubt, a, a really alarming trend of decline. Some say 10%, some say 30%, whatever it is, it isn't good, and if it continues, it won't be long in the next century before we'll be hard-pressed to find a good, healthy coral reef anywhere, given the circumstances that we've been witnessing in the last very few decades. And global warming seems to be implicated in that stress and that decline. Given that the more we know, the more we realize we don't know, can you give us an idea of the number or scope of things yet to be discovered in the aquatic world? <laughs> well, just summing it up, the greatest era of exploration has just begun. We, we have just begun to lift the lid on the issues, uh, beginning to recognize the magnitude of our ignorance. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I said if I could choose a time to be around, it would be during the time that I happened to be around, but actually, if I could, I'd be the age of the kids in the audience now, because you've got a little more future to look forward to, and this is the time. This is the time, the stage is set with the technology development that has come about in the 19th century and the 20th century, so that the 21st and all the time that follows is likely to be the most exciting time in human history, with the ability to do things in a positive way to ensure a prosperous future for humankind. For the first time, we know how to do things. For the first time, we understand our dependence 
on the natural systems. We're beginning to see that little currents off the coast of South America, El Nino, might have a profound impact on the price of corn, on rainfall in Africa, or lack of it, that the world is all tied together, and that we are totally dependent on the way the natural systems work. And we have the ability not only to influence them in a negative sort of way, by knowing how these systems work, we can back off or do positive things, such as planting trees where they have been cut, such as, as trying to restore damaged marshes, as trying to give wildlife a, a chance to recover, to give the natural resilience a chance to really restore health to the planet for our sake, not just for the sake of eagles and tuna and bears and things, but for all of us, for all time. Can you explain how you made your deepest untethered dive? Did you have to reattach yourself to the submersible? How was that possible in a gym suit? <laughs> well, I've had the, the great joy of jumping into the ocean under a number of what some regard as uh, unusual circumstances that with a system called the gym. It's a system that it looks a bit like an astronaut suit, or some would say the Michelin Man. It's a walking suit. I went down attached to the front end of a little submarine, a submersible, called the Star 2, a few miles offshore from the shore of Oahu in Hawaii, and down to a depth of 1,250 feet. Once on the bottom, a band around my waist, or the waist of the suit in which I was standing, was released and I was able to walk free on the sea floor, but I had a, an attachment line, a communications line, back to the submersible. No line to the surface, as has always been used in when the system has been used before or since. But um, when the sub lifted off, it was I just was pulled up with the sub by essentially the scruff of my neck when the top of, when uh, the communication line that held the sub and my dive suit together, we went up together. The second system, though, that the deep rover had no attachment to anything else. I was just by myself in this clear sphere, a little bubble. It was wonderful, is wonderful, to explore the ocean like that. You're just sitting down in a comfortable, you know, cushy seat with a sphere all around you and drive it around like a little car. The atmosphere on the inside is the same atmosphere, same pressure as we have here. And it's remarkable freedom. I mean, people go into the woods, they climb mountains, they ride bicycles, they <laughs> ride horses or whatever. You go into many places all by yourself and don't think much about it. It's considered to be scary to be going into the ocean that way, but I don't think so. You're never alone. You're surrounded by life. And I hope you'll all have a chance to try it soon. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much, Dr. Sylvia Earle. Thank you. Thank you.